when I was in elementary school, I sold candy bars for a school fundraiser in order to get one of these, a Sony Walkman. Um, I don't know if you remember these things, but uh, I, was, I was so excited because this thing would play not only the radio, but also cassette tapes. It was one of those that had both radio and cassettes. You know, remember, if you remember what cassette tapes were, maybe some younger people maybe don't, but, uh, but I worked really hard to be able to get one of these Walkmans, and I listened to it all the time. I loved it. And then near the end of high school, um, music began to shift away from cassette tapes and they began to introduce CDs. So then I bought one of these, a Sony Discman. And maybe some of you had one of those. And, and I was amazed at the fact that you could now skip to the exact song you wanted to listen to. Instead of having to like fast forward or rewind the cassette tape to try to find where that song was, you could just skip right to it on a CD. And I was amazed at the technological advance that happened there between cassette tapes to CDs. And I, I figured that there was no, that this was the pinnacle of how we were going to listen to music. You know, maybe CDs would get a little bit smaller or something, but this was just, this was it. And then, of course, came the iPod. Remember when this was introduced, we had all of a sudden you could download entire albums, not just one album, but multiple albums, thousands of songs on this one little device. And when you ran with it, it wouldn't skip like those CDs would sometimes do, right? And so it was this amazing introduction of this new technology, digital music, right? Digital music, where music was now digitized and you could have Eventually, you know, when this moved into the iPhone, right, you could have thousands, tens of thousands of songs on one little device. You know, here we are on our phones, right? Many of us can have the, and now we've even advanced beyond that to streaming services, right? Like Spotify and Pandora and Apple Music, where you can just have access to just these huge libraries of music. Um, it's amazing to think about some of the advances that happen in technology, right? And the ways that things move from one thing into this thing that maybe you couldn't have even imagined at some point of how things were going to advance. Well, when Jesus came and began to preach and minister in Israel, it was kind of like the introduction of the iPod. Because, because what Jesus did as he, as he entered the scene, as he began to preach and teach the way that he, the things that he said, the things that he did, for the people at, at that time, they were so different from what had come before him. Um, there was continuity with the past. There was, there was, Jesus was, was building off of what had come before in, in Israel's scriptures and the Old Testament and the story of Israel, but he was bringing something brand new as well into, into their midst. Um, and so in today, today's text, we're going to see an, a, one example of that in, in part of Jesus' teaching in what we've been going through the last couple of weeks, this, this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we are, we're going through this, this famous sermon that Jesus preached uh, on a mountainside that is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, uh, and the teaching that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, it is a revolutionary teaching. It is something that was, that was really new in so many ways. And so um, two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gave what's often referred to as the Beatitudes, this list of, of those who he says are blessed. And we, as we saw, the people who he says are blessed 
are very countercultural to what we often associate with the idea of those who are, who are blessed in, in this life. Um, and then last week, we looked at Jesus giving, using these images of salt and light to talk about how his disciples are meant to be in the world, that we are called to be salt and light in the world. And so in today's text, um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Jesus begins to talk about his relationship with Israel's scriptures, uh, the law and the prophets, um, what we refer to today as Christians as the Old Testament, and how his followers are to interact with those laws and commands of the Old Testament. Um, And so kind of like the introduction of the iPod, Jesus gives a brand new perspective on the Old Testament and on its laws. And as he does this, one of the the key things I'm going to focus on today in my message is he talks about a greater righteousness. A greater righteousness, which is the the title of my sermon. And what we're going to look at is is what this greater righteousness is that Jesus is talking about here and how it relates to the Old Testament, the laws that we find there, and how it relates also to himself. So our text is uh, is Matthew chapter 5, and we're just going to be reading a few verses today, uh, verses 17 through 20. Um, It's on page 683 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Um, And and, and we're going to see that this is really kind of an introductory uh, section that's going to kind of um, influence and shape even the the, the verses that are going to follow this in in the coming weeks. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, open your word to us this morning as, as we study it. Uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would illumine your word to us today and that you would also uh, speak into our lives, into our hearts, Lord, um, that you would use your word to examine us and to shape us um, and uh, so we invite your spirit now to speak, Holy Spirit. Give me the words that you've um, given me to, to prepare to sh- share with the congregation. And so pray that you, your word would proclaim, be proclaimed now in Jesus' name. Amen. This, uh, this very short passage, um, as I said, it's, it's very important for the Sermon on the Mount because it, it kind of introduces the rest of chapter 5. Uh, which we're going to be looking at over the next couple Sundays. And so what Jesus says here in general um, is going to set up some of the specific examples that he uses in the verses that follow. And we're going to be looking at some of those specific examples in the coming weeks. And so what Jesus is doing here in in this passage is he is laying out what he calls a, a greater righteousness, which his followers should show in their lives. Um, and when we use that word righteousness, what we're talking about is, is being in a right relationship with God, being in a right relationship with other people, um, and doing what is morally just and morally right. 
Um, so it, it, can, it, it encompasses all those things. Righteousness is the way that we relate to God and to others and, and, and doing justice, doing right. And so at the end of the passage, the last verse that we, that we just read, um, in verse 20, Jesus says this. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here, he contrasts the righteousness of these groups of these particular groups of people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he says that, that, that his followers should have a righteousness that is greater. Now, your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, actually, that if you do not have this greater righteousness, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we better figure out what this righteousness is that Jesus is talking about, right? What is this greater righteousness that he says is surpassing the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, we're going to look at sort of this idea of the greater righteousness that Jesus is talking about in three different ways this morning, and it's in um, on the, the sermon notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way, um, just to kind of go through this. And so the first thing that we see that we're going to look at as Jesus talks about this greater righteousness is that Jesus is referring to a contrast between external rule following versus internal righteousness. External rule following versus internal righteousness. So when Jesus says that his followers must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, part of what he's talking about is this contrast, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had a righteousness that was basically external rule following, but was lacking an internal righteousness. Um, and we're going to unpack that in, in a minute. But, what I, but what's important for us to notice about this is that for many people in Jesus' day, the idea of having a righteousness that surpassed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have been shocking to them. Because in, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the ones that people thought, they're the ones that are righteous. They're the ones that have it all together. They've got the righteousness thing down. In fact, the, the word Pharisee um, means one who is separated, one who is separate. Um, and, and so this is what the Pharisees prided themselves on, that they were, they separated themselves from other groups in Israel by saying that they were the ones that kept the Old Testament law strictly. They were, they were the righteous ones. Um, on top of even just the, the laws that we find in the Old Testament, the Pharisees added additional rules and regulations to sort of create a fence around the law. And so on the surface, when Jesus says this, you can imagine his hearers thinking, we're supposed to have a righteousness that is greater than them? I mean, those are the ones that are really righteous. But... What Jesus, part of what Jesus is talking about here is that he, throughout his ministry, Jesus has very harsh words for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He often criticizes them, and the reason that he criticizes them is because they were focused on external rule following and not an internal righteousness. We see this uh, in a lot of different places, but one that I want to just point out is in Matthew chapter 15, so a little bit later on in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 15, some Pharisees and teachers of the law, they are criticizing Jesus' disciples for not practicing ceremonial hand-washing before eating. So the, the, one of these sort of ritual, ceremonial 
cleansing sort of practices. Um, and, and so they're criticizing Jesus' disciples because they're not following this. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees um, in their criticism by actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29. And so this is in, in Matthew 15, verses 8 to 9. Jesus says this. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So this is Jesus' kind of diagnosis of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, is that they, they're, they're sort of speaking, they're honoring with his lips, but their hearts are far from God. And many of their teachings are just rules taught by men. The Pharisees were focused on external rule following, in this case, ceremonial rules about cleanliness, but Jesus says their hearts are far from God. He goes on in this passage to talk about how, how, how what makes you clean is not you know, what you, how you wash your hands, external things, but it's, it's what comes out of the heart. And that's where the Pharisees were lacking. They were lacking any sort of internal righteousness in their hearts. And, and so actually in the verses that follow, flipping back over now to our text in Matthew 5, back to the Sermon on the Mount, in, in the following verses, we're going to look at, we're going to see this in the coming weeks, that one of the things that Jesus draws out in certain examples is this contrast between external rule following and internal righteousness. Um, so one of the examples that we'll, we'll dig into more next week is that Jesus basically says, you know, someone can follow the external rule of not actually murdering someone, right? I mean, how, probably not many of us have actually murdered someone, right? Physically taken someone's life. But what Jesus says, right, is that that doesn't make you righteous, is just not murdering someone. He goes on to say, actually, if you have a heart full of anger and hatred towards someone, you're just as guilty of murder. So you see the contrast there, right? The external rule of, of okay, I'm not going to physically murder someone, but the internal question of where is your heart? Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is there hatred that's going on within you that maybe no one sees, but God sees? He, he gives another example that we'll look at next week of, of the, the, the rule of not committing adultery with someone. Right? So there's that, there's that sort of external rule of, of the actual act of adultery, but then Jesus says that, that if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty of this, right? So he's making this contrast between sort of an external sort of rule versus the internal righteousness. And what he's going to talk about is actually that, that these rules we see, some of them are, are in the Ten Commandments, right? That the heart of these, of these commandments are not just about an external rule, but it's about the heart. It's about what God is doing there. So we're going to dig into more of those in, in the weeks um, to come. But the point of it is that what Jesus is doing here is he's pr bringing out the fact that the Pharisees, they're focused on these external rules. They lack an internal righteousness because actually when you look at the Pharisees, what's happening in their hearts, they are filled with pride and arrogance as they're judging everyone else and thinking that they are better than everyone else, that they are the ones who are righteous, that Jesus criticizes them because they have no compassion, they have no mercy toward others. Um, and so Jesus is saying that these Pharisees and, and, and teachers of the law, their hearts are far from God. You know, for us today, it can actually be easier to focus on external rule following that, that, that rather than on internal righteousness. You know, we can, we can focus on looking righteous on the outside, um, avoiding sort of blatant sins that other people could see or, or, you know, certain visible vices. And sometimes the church has sometimes almost 
emphasize, overemphasize some of those external rules in, in different contexts. And we can also put on a really nice external righteous show when, when we do lots of religious and moral things, right? We can, we can go to church every Sunday and we can read our Bibles and we can pray and we can, we can volunteer and help people. And again, all those things, they're not bad things, right? If they're flowing out of a genuine love for God and worship of God and need for him, right? But if it's just external, we're just going through the motions of doing these things that are external, but we're missing what's internal. That's what Jesus is, is pointing out here. We can do all the right things externally, but internally, our hearts can still be far from God, filled with anger and envy and a judgmental spirit and lust and pride. And as I said in my very first message of this sermon series, one thing that we should expect as we go through the Sermon on the Mount is that we are going to feel convicted that we are going to feel that recognition that, you know what, I am not living up to what Jesus is saying here. And we need to be careful that when we feel that in our heart, that we don't try to wiggle our way out of that conviction and sort of try to self-justify ourselves and, and, and say, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as that person over there, or, or, or well, I'm doing my, the best that I can. Listen again to Jesus' words in verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to feel the weight of that demand, the weight of the law, that not only should we keep the more visible external laws that God has given to us in his word, but that our righteousness should go beyond that beyond that external rule following, to actually having an internal righteousness of the heart where we are filled with, with compassion and mercy and humility and, and all the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus says that unless that is true of you, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whew. Feel the weight of that. I don't know about you, but I do not always feel that I have that kind of internal righteousness in my heart. In fact, I don't even follow all the external laws that God has given us in the Bible perfectly. And so if, if that is all that Jesus means by this greater righteousness, if it's all about just us being able to somehow fulfill the law's demands and have both an external and an internal righteousness, then we're in trouble. And actually, we're all in trouble. Because Romans 3, in Romans 3.10, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 14, and he says, There is no one righteous, not even one. None of us are righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. None of us are. We all fall short of both the external laws that God has given us and the internal righteousness we're supposed to have in our hearts. We all fall short. There is no one righteous if we're thinking about just our own righteousness. Not the Pharisees or teachers of the law, but neither Jesus' disciples or pastors or missionaries, or Mother Teresa, or whoever you think of when you think of that person that's really righteous. The 
the Apostle Paul himself, not even him, no one. So is there any hope of entering the kingdom of heaven, of coming under the rule of God? What could be this greater righteousness that we need in order to enter it? Well, there is actually one who is perfectly righteous. There is one who kept all the external laws that God has given us in, in all the laws of Israel and who also had a perfect internal righteousness in his heart. The only one who meets this standard is the one who preached the sermon. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, in, in verse 17, the beginning verse of, that, of our text, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came, not to get rid of the law, but he came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill all that the law and the prophets teach. He, he came to fulfill everything in the Old Testament, all the, the prophetic promises and prophecies about the Messiah, right? He fulfilled all of those prophecies. He fulfilled all of the sacrificial laws of the Old Testament as he himself took the place of those sacrifices and, and died on the cross so that there are no need for sacrifices anymore. And he came to fulfill all of the moral law of the Old Testament. He has done it all perfectly, complete, external and internal. He has fulfilled all the demands of the law. And so, because Jesus has done that, even though we haven't, that brings us to the second aspect of this greater righteousness that I believe Jesus is talking about here, which is that we can be credited with Christ's righteousness. Being credited with Christ's righteousness. As I said, Jesus, he embodies this greater righteousness that he's talking about here, right? His righteousness far surpassed that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? He had, he, again, he, he kept all the law perfectly, but he also had that internal righteousness. And so if there's one person who can enter the kingdom of heaven, it is Jesus. He is the only one who can enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. But one of the things that the New Testament teaches and proclaims is that we too can enter that kingdom of heaven because of Jesus' righteousness. Because Jesus was righteous in our place. And now we can be credited with his righteousness. We saw this in, in the scripture reading that, that Debbie read in Philippians 3. In, in Philippians 3, the apostle Paul and guess who, who, who Paul was? He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And in Philippians 3, he talks about all the external rule following that he did when he was a Pharisee, right? He, he, he says he was faultless in terms of legalistic righteousness. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He, was, he did it all. But then he goes on to say that he now considers all of that kind of righteousness rubbish garbage, loss. And instead, he says that his desire, in, in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 3, he says, his desire is that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ.
Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So Paul here is talking about a righteousness that is not from himself, but it is a righteousness that comes from God. It is a righteousness that is outside of himself. It is a righteousness that is, the, the theological term for this is imputed to him, that it is credited to him. And how is it credited? It is when you are found in Christ, as he says, when you have faith in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are counted as righteous because of Christ's righteousness, not because of your righteousness. We just sang that in that, that opening hymn, right? My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is because of his blood that covers our sin. It is because of his righteousness that covers us, that, that, that is credited to us. And this makes a lot of sense if you think back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in those Beatitudes that Jesus taught, because the very first Beatitude, Jesus actually says, he describes the person who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. And what does he say who the kingdom of heaven belongs to? The poor in spirit. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for what is theirs? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven actually goes to the poor in spirit. And we talked about this two weeks ago when we looked at that, that what does it mean to have poor in spirit? It means that you acknowledge that you are spiritually poor, that you have spiritual poverty, spiritual need, that you are not completely righteous. You acknowledge that. And so if those who acknowledge that they are not righteous are still able to enter the kingdom of heaven, how can that be? Well, it must be that they are given a greater righteousness that allows them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It must be a righteousness from outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is Christ. The only one who has that greater perfect righteousness is Jesus Christ. And so when we acknowledge our poverty of spirit, our lack of righteousness, and call out to God and say, Jesus, I am not righteous in myself, but please give me your righteousness. When we call out in poverty, guess what God does? He says, you are credited with Christ's righteousness. He credits that righteousness to our account graciously, mercifully. We don't deserve it. It's not ours, but it's given to us in Christ. And when that happens, we are also, again, surpassing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in another way because the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they prided themselves in thinking that they were righteous in themselves, that they deserved a place in the kingdom of heaven. They thought, I can handle it myself. I'm not poor in spirit. I am rich in spirit. I can do it myself. Jesus says, the kingdom of God only belongs to the poor in spirit. So for those who don't acknowledge that they need Christ's righteousness, for those who are trusting only in their own righteousness, Jesus says, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you acknowledge that you need Jesus' righteousness in order to enter the kingdom of God. For those of us who acknowledge our spiritual poverty, that we're trusting in Christ's righteousness, guess what? We, our righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, is way greater 
than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the, and the teachers of the law. It far surpasses theirs because they don't have it, but Christ does. And we have it because of Christ. Now, when that happens, when we're credited with Christ's righteousness, when we're brought under the kingdom of, of God, something also happens internally to us which ends up actually producing a greater righteousness in our lives as well. How does that happen? We are given the Holy Spirit, which begins to produce this kind of righteousness within us. And so that's the third and final way that we can think of this greater righteousness. Right? There's this contrast between external and internal there's Christ's righteousness, that's the ultimate righteousness that, that we're credited with, that allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then we also have the Holy Spirit-produced righteousness that happens in us when we are in Christ, when we've received Christ. This righteousness in our lives, it, it doesn't come from ourselves, but it is produced by the Holy Spirit. And that, again, is a far greater righteousness than any of the legalistic, pride-filled, self-generated righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? It's a totally different kind of righteousness. And this greater Holy Spirit-produced righteousness is actually a sign that we have received Christ's righteousness, that we've been brought into Christ because Jesus says that you're a good, you're, it's going to bear fruit in your life. When you're in Christ, it's going to bear fruit it's a sign that we've come under the kingdom of heaven. And so our righteousness doesn't earn our place in the kingdom, but this greater righteousness in our lives is a sign, an evidence of the fact that we have been brought into his kingdom. Here's sort of an illustration that, that maybe to kind of picture, picture visualize this. Imagine that you are, you're, you're about to enter this, this amazing restaurant that has the most delicious food you can imagine, and you've heard about it from all these different people, and, and once you enter, you get to eat everything for free, right? This is an amazing restaurant. But in order to get into this restaurant, you have to make this exact copy of a very intricate painting, it's a very strange restaurant. It's a very strange situation here, right? But you have to somehow duplicate this perfect painting in order to actually gain access into this restaurant. And so one day, as you're, try you're, you're, you're trying to paint this picture, but, but every time you, you just can't quite get it, right? You, or you make a mistake here, and, and, you don't, and, and, and so you can't get into the restaurant. And then one day, the original painter of the painting comes up to you and says, here, take my painting and present it at the door as yours. This is yours now. And so you do. You say, Here, here's the painting, and you're welcomed in to this amazing restaurant and enjoying all the, the fruits of this amazing food, and it's all free. And while you're in the restaurant enjoying all this food, the painter comes up to you, and he says, would you like to learn how to paint like me? Would you like to learn how to paint this way? And, and man, you, all of a sudden, you're, you're offered to get this private lesson from this amazing painter who has just painted this masterpiece, and he's saying he's going to teach you how to paint like that, to discover techniques you never would have discovered on your own. You see, it was, it was the painter's painting that got you into the restaurant, but once you're in, the, the painter, he teaches you to paint in a way that you never could have before. It's not a perfect illustration, 
But, 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 but think about, right, Christ's righteousness is that painting, right, that, that opens the door into the kingdom of heaven for us, that, that we can't paint ourselves, right? You can only receive his painting to gain access. But once we're in, Jesus says, you're in, right? There's nothing you have to do. To, to, you're in. But would you like me to teach you how to paint? Would you like me to teach you how to live righteously, how to live in a way that's, that's better than how you were living out here? That's what Jesus does, and he gives us the tools. He gives us the Holy Spirit who enables us to actually do that. And the way he teaches us to, to do that is not in the external rule following of the Pharisees, but it is in producing an internal righteousness in our hearts, deep in our hearts. And, and one of the interesting things about this greater righteousness that, that, that Jesus teaches us how to live is that it is a righteousness that is in continuity with the Old Testament. And so just very briefly, there's a couple other verses to, to highlight here. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, right? And so part of what he's saying here is that he's come to fulfill it, but also he's come not to just get, a, get rid of the law, not to just get rid of the Old Testament law and prophets and say, you know, and there are, there are some Christians who are tempted to say, well, once we're in, we've gotten God's grace, then we don't need the law anymore, right? We don't need to follow that anymore, or we, or, or we don't need the Old Testament anymore, right? All we need is the New Testament. Jesus says, no, no, no. I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to abolish the Old Testament, but actually I've come to fulfill it so that when you read the Old Testament, you read it differently. You read it through the lens of me. You read it through the lens of Christ, and you see Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament. And you see him fulfilling things in the law, but also you see elements that, that the law is given. Some of those laws are given for our good. They're given so that we, as the Holy Spirit empowers us, we begin to live like that. And so Jesus continues in verse 18 to say, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So all the law, right, stays there until it's all been accomplished, until, until Christ returns, until there's no need for the law or the scriptures anymore because Christ is all in all and we're in his presence, and, right? But until then, none of this is going to disappear. It's all there, right, pointing us to Christ, but then also teaching us how to live like Christ in our lives through the Holy Spirit. And then verse 19 gives the practical consequence of all this where Jesus says, Anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus warns about setting aside even the least of these commands, but instead he calls his disciples to practice and teach the commands found in the law and the prophets. Again, we're never going to do it perfectly, we're trusting in Christ's righteousness, but he calls us to live like this. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks as we look at these contrasts that Jesus brings out in the next uh, following verses is that he is going to teach us. He's going to lift up certain Old Testament laws, certain rules, and talk about how they point to this greater righteousness, right? This, this internal righteousness, how they also point us to Christ again, his righteousness, but also how they point us to what it looks like to live with the Holy Spirit empowering our lives. And that other verse, that, that other passage that Debbie read in Je Jeremiah 31, 33, G 
Jeremiah talks about how one day there's going to be this new covenant, the new covenant in Jesus. And he says, what's going to happen then? I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. What's that talking about? That internal righteousness, right? That's not an external one, but it's actually a law that's written in our hearts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as he writes God's law in our minds, in our hearts, as he empowers us to live out this greater righteousness in our lives. So as we close today, I just want to close with a couple questions for you to think about. Where do you see yourself in all of this? Are you trying to keep external rules to show that you're righteous, like the Pharisees did? Are you trying to prove that you can achieve righteousness through your own willpower, that you can, can do it on your own? If you are doing that, watch out. Because if you stay in that place, Jesus says you will not enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't acknowledge that you need him, if you're trying to do it on yourself. But if you recognize that you're not righteous enough, and even the things you think you're doing as righteous deeds are often motivated by selfishness and pride, and, and you find yourself thinking, I am not righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven, that's exactly where you need to be. It means that you are now acknowledging your poverty of spirit. And cry out to Jesus, for his righteousness to clothe you, to be credited to you, and he will not turn you away. He has done everything for you to welcome you into his kingdom, and as you receive that amazing gift, hear his words, so now would you like me to teach you how to paint? Would you like me to teach you how to live righteously? It's such a joy to learn how to live in righteousness when our place with God is secure when we're not doing it to earn anything from God. We're not doing it to prove anything. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to prove anything. We just get to learn how to live like the one who has saved us. We get to learn from the master. And so let's do that over the coming weeks as we look at the, at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's rest in what Christ has done for us and experience the joy of growing into this greater righteousness that Christ has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for fulfilling the law and the prophets, for coming to, to fulfill everything that came before and, and for accomplishing the righteousness that we do not have, but the righteousness that you do have and the righteousness that now you graciously, mercifully credit to us in our place. Lord, we, we don't deserve that. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful and that, you, that you've done it all for us. And so help us, Lord, to have the humility to acknowledge that we need your righteousness. We can't do it ourselves. And to call out to you. And thank you that you do. You, you, when we do that, Lord, you say, the kingdom of heaven is yours. It's all yours. And then teach us, Lord, how to live, how to walk in righteousness through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, that you would give us and produce in us a greater righteousness that goes beyond externals, that goes really to the heart Write your law in our hearts, Lord, that we would live for you in worship of all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.